Hey everybody, this is Rob Liefeld and we are doing another installment of Rob Observations. Welcome to Rob Observations. This episode is going to be brutal. It's brutal. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's one that we could not escape. There was no outrunning the subject matter that is the death in comic books. The Bronze Age of Comics was an era that saw so many different areas of maturation. That's that's kind of what is the staple of the Bronze Era of comic books. Is It is the era where comics grew up, got mature, uh, dealt with more uh, mature uh, and adult uh, su- subject matter. And, and death and characters' deaths uh, are a huge part of this. And... Uh, as we go along, especially towards the end, you're going to see that deaths, death in comics, death of characters, uh, would become um, a selling point by by the end of this this period. But especially at the dawn of uh, the Bronze Age of comics, characters dying was uh, quite done in quite a clever fashion. You did not see it coming. Many were shocks and surprises, legitimate, legitimate uh, surprises that that you were not expecting at that page turn that shocked you. I myself am going to uh, recount to you uh, the, the the top what I believe the top most impactful to me to me, and they happen to also be the the top and most impactful in the industry. But a couple of these deaths in comics I uh, interacted with and encountered uh, at least one very significant one was uh, you know eating a Western dipple bacon cheeseburger at uh, at Carl's jr okay and 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 some of them are going to be in the back of the car as I am waiting while my mom shops in the mall and the the most significant one, uh, along those lines, it, I, it it moved me to the point of tears as a kid. It it was absolutely a a uh, a death that affected me and uh, was was found me in an emotional wreck. As it happens when you engage with a character that you create a bond with, that you have this relationship with, you've gone on this journey, and the emotions can be crazy because you're like wait a second this is a comic book character but but it's it's a gut punch and it's it's a it's it's wrenching and that is the power of what great storytelling can achieve and the mastery of some of these great storytellers many of these great creators who crafted these tales in a in such a fashion that you could not see it coming now the Bronze Era. What is the Bronze Era, Rob? You talk about it all the time. I've 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 seen some of your interactions. Some people actually are are asking specifically what is what is the definition, the time period, what what is the parameters. Well, here's the deal. Most uh, people agree to disagree, and they give it a three-year gap on either side. Some people believe 1970 to 1973 is the beginning of the Bronze Age. That is. A, a nice cushion with which to interact with. And then a lot of people think it ends between 1984 and 1986. I have always operated under that the Bronze Age begins 
with the death of Gwen Stacy. This happened in April of 1973. It was a shock. So how fitting that the Bronze Age begins with a tragic death no one saw coming that that uh, found uh, kids all over America shocked that Spider-Man's uh, you know, love of his life, this effervescent character that everyone had completely fallen head over heels along with Peter Parker, Gwen Stacy, is murdered by his most uh, heinous supervillain, the Green Goblin. This, uh, it, it's, it's, I mean, Green Goblin drops her from the sky, Spider-Man can't save her, the, the, uh, the, 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 the plummet of her death, and it, when he stretches out to save her with the web line, it is what impacts her dying. And so, you know, Green Goblin is like instantly the worst villain ever because he is complicit in the murder of the love of Peter Parker's life, which then darkens Spider-Man considerably as he vows to take vengeance on Green Goblin. It was uh, fairly mature and dark and had a tremendous impact and i mean you're like look spider-man's girlfriend just died at the hands of the green the green goblin who set this all in motion in order to exact his vengeance on spider-man that's, that's some dark stuff so 1973 i'm not in comics this is a comic i will read in reprints but this is uh long been debated as kind of the kickstart of this age of comics that things get a little more mature now some people uh, have told me expressly that Neil Adams and Danny O'Neill, uh, their run on Green Lantern, Green Arrow, was the kickstart of the Bronze Era because of so many of the adult uh, teen, uh, the adult uh, subject matter that they dealt with, especially in regards to giving uh, Green Arrow's former sidekick or his sidekick Speedy a, a, a drug problem. It dealt with race issues. Neil and Denny took on societal issues. They took on uh, stuff that was ripped from the headlines and they put it through the superhero filter. And I've gone on at length at how no one drew anything as well as Neil. And Neil had a very realistic style that helped really drive all of this stuff home because so much of what he looked was, for the time, very photorealistic. So it rose above maybe your standard um, comic book cartoon style, even some of you know, like Jack Kirby. I don't think of Jack Kirby as cartoony. I just think Jack Kirby is as looking like Jack Kirby's world. And maybe these stories drawn by Jack Kirby don't resonate in the same way as they do with Neil, who made it grimy and gritty. And and when 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 Roy Harper is a drug addict, you can feel the sweat coming off of his brow. I mean, he is. Uh, it, it's very graphic. They 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 show drug use. They show racism. They're challenged on. Uh, on bigotry. So that's 1970. So I was at a collectible card show, comic book show, uh, in my su local Southern California area. It's actually quite large. It has a gazillion vendors. It's called Frank and Sons in Pomona. So if you ever are in or city of industry in that area, just look up Frank and Sons on MapQuest, on, on, on whatever device you need to get, you, get there. It, you're you're going to find a jam-packed parking lot, long lines to get in, and they reopened uh, a few weeks back as we are uh, in coming out of what was a multi-month lockdown, and so the fans are back in droves, as I am. I was buying some back issues, I was shopping for some toys, but as I was flipping through buying comic books, 
uh, from the Bronze Era, uh, I asked a number of the different guys who had the back issues there. I said, "Hey, what what, what do you um, what do you think is the the, the Bronze Era?" And the, I got different answers, and and they all range between the 1970 and the 1973 window. Green one guy doubled down with me as it's Death of Gwen Stacy. Another guy who I didn't ask him, I was actually rifling through the comics and he says, hey Rob, what, what are you looking for? What do you collect? And I said, well, I'm really collecting a bunch of stuff from the Bronze Age right now. And I said, that's kind of been my, my rebuying my childhood has been, um, you know, kind of my, my, my priority for the last better part of a decade. And he's like, oh, Bronze Age. So, so Green Lantern, Green Arrow, that stuff. And I said, no, he's like, oh, well, you know, that's where it started. So, and, and the thing is, I said, dude, you're younger than me. This guy is in his late thirties, early forties, and I'm, you know, Mr. 50 year old. So it's funny people, uh, who weren't there, who, who did not experience it are defining it to me as 1970 with the Neil Adams, Green Lantern, Green Arrow. I am telling you, uh, there is another school of thought that finds it with Gwen Stacy dying. Both matter. Both are valid. Both are within the same realm. It ends uh, with Watchmen and Frank Miller in 1986. Watchmen with Alan Moore, Frank Miller's Dark Knight. It ends with Watchmen and Dark Knight in 1986 uh, as they both usher in an even more mature era and even down to formats, miniseries, prestige uh, formats. They, they they beckon a new age on so many levels, on so many different levels. So so whether it's 1970 to 1986, 1973 to 1986, some people have it at eight, as 84, which I do not understand. You can't end it before Crisis on, on Infinite Earths because that's a seminal Bronze Age uh, experience. But that also traffics in plenty of deaths. Now, if 1973 kicks it off with Gwen Stacy dying, then we are completely within our realm of discussing what kind of defines this entire era, which is, as I said at the top of the show, these these significant deaths. So I'm going to start with the, the, not the first significant death. I'm going to start with the death that was the most significant and impactful on me. So when Frank Miller is doing Daredevil and transforming it, as I have covered and I have um, discussed with you so many times before, Frank Miller's multi-year run is uh just resets the character it gives him in a completely different uh outlook it gives him a completely different uh just 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 portrayal that elevates him from the uh you know kind of spider-man b-list spider-man imitator you know protector of of the neighborhood rooftop billy club wielding guy Frank comes on, introduces a serious crime mob faction. He introduces the Yakuza. He gives all these huge billionaires that are uh, that 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 are that are you know competing to 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 corrupt New York City. And so then you've got Matt Murdock who is meeting some of these billionaires and these tycoons and these crooked people you know in the courtroom, uh, juxtaposed Daredevil who's meeting out his vengeance on the streets with the uh you know the the deputies that that uh, of different crime families that that take their crime to the streets so he battles their deputies and their lieutenants while battling the actual figurehead billionaires tycoons in the courtroom now in daredevil 168 we have covered that frank this is his first issue full full writing full uh illustration 168, he introduces Electra Nachios. She is 
breathtaking from the start. It, it reveals a chapter of Matt Murdock's life in college where he finds this love of his life, Electra Nachios, who is a, a daughter of a Greek ambassador. And even when she's introduced on the campus where they are college students, uh, she is being ushered around by a giant bodyguard all in, you know, dressed in black. And she, she's um, accompanied by this hired muscle who Matt Murdock has to uh, distract in order to have a moment alone with her and kind of set up a date. And she introduces herself and talks about the heavy guard that she's put under as she is the daughter of a Greek ambassador. But even in their first encounter, when she he when Matt lures the bodyguard away, she warns him, I know martial arts, I'm well-trained. If you're trying to take advantage of me, you know, you won't get very far. And Matt is, you know, very, uh, very amused by her boldness. They have this whirlwind romance uh, that ends tragically in their college years. She departs. I don't want to ruin too much of this stuff for you guys. I know there's like almost 40 years uh, statute of limitations on this, but I'm hoping maybe you uh, hunt it down, look it over yourself. Bottom line, she departs from his life. He is left heartbroken. We now know that this tragic love story uh, has haunted Matt Murdock. Well, she returns in the modern day as Electra bounty hunter, assassin for hire, uh, mercenary. And they are at complete odds. And when he realizes that he is battling his college love of his life, there is all of that conflict because he's still madly in love with her. And, you know, at this at this time, uh, Daredevil had had so many different, uh, different love interests. Uh, in, in the book, he had this kind of on and off again romance with Black Widow, uh, and, and, and that was exciting for readers like me. I actually was fairly engaged in that. I thought that was pretty interesting. And then of course he was, um, coming out of a relationship with a character named Karen Page, uh, from, uh, who you guys saw, um, wonderfully portrayed on the Daredevil Netflix series. Uh, and, and, uh, the, the, uh, look, Karen Page was a great character. She is, uh, she, she had kind of, in my mind, as a reader, checking in, had, had absolutely run her course. There was, there was not a lot more uh, going on with that character. And, and especially after encountering Electra, you really didn't care about Karen any further. Karen was wonderfully portrayed by Deborah Ann Wall on the uh, Netflix TV series. And I actually really enjoyed her on the Netflix series more than I ever did in the comic books. That's that's when you put a wonderful talent actress uh, behind a character that maybe you weren't completely uh, sold on in the pages of the comics, and then they have you reevaluate that character with their performance. But in the pages of the comic books, uh, Black Widow was a more enticing love interest for Daredevil, but that was so off again, on again, and there was not a real level of consistency there even though Frank portrayed a little of it when he first came on as a penciler before he got the reins as an as a writer um, and he did a killer black widow and some some really stunning renditions of her and the, and their in their relationship and their interactions but there was nothing like Electra she was a lightning bolt she hit immediately visually with her red outfit with her size the SAI not size SIZE with her her specific weapon that she used and she was vicious. 
she would impale people with these sighs. She would, uh, she, she as, was just as capable as Daredevil was in hand-to-hand combat, maybe even more so. She did get the upper hand on him several times during the uh, whirlwind uh, romance that they would uh, re- rekindle because obviously Matt is now uh, crazy about her, knows that she's back in his life, and Electra also can't quite resist Matt Murdock. She can't resist Daredevil. They have they have a thing. So not only are Matt Murdock and Electra a thing, Electra is a thing in the culture of comic books almost immediately. She is blowing up. She is uh, everywhere, not in comics, because she is exclusively the domain of Frank Miller in the Daredevil comics. You don't get Electra guest appearances in other books. She strictly appears in Daredevil comic books by Frank Miller. But you guys know, as you go to comic book stores, as you go to comic conventions, and this was the age where these were really starting to pop up, the direct market exclusive standalone comic book stores were really starting to become a thing from 1980 on. So so Daredevil and X-Men are rising as the direct market is happening as stores in a town near you, standalone, dedicated comic book stores, new stores, old issues are a thing. But comic book conventions are starting to happen, and I'm, as a young man, 12 years old, 13 years old, which is when this is all going down for me, I am starting to attend comic convention after comic convention after comic convention, And you guys know, even today, in today's world, when you go to a show, the characters that are popping are the ones that the retailers are putting out um, on their aisle. Uh, They're they're propping them up for you to see. They're the most displayed on their wall, wall books. They become the most premier wall books. They have the increased price tags. They get the label, First Electra. You know, the prices are going up. But on the comic convention circuit, the characters get requested hey can i have a drawing of electra they become the characters that are on the commission lists they are the prints the posters and that is exactly what was happening you suddenly started going to conventions and electra is being requested by everyone it doesn't matter whether frank miller's there michael golden is being requested to draw frank miller john byrne i mean electra john byrne is drawing electra george perez is drawing electra every uh amateur uh, want to be trying to break into comics, myself included, is settling Electra drawings. She has become just an instantaneous overnight sensation, the likes of which, as I said, has only occurred in the past with a character like uh, Wolverine and maybe in a little ways the way Punisher burst onto the scene, but Punisher didn't happen immediately. He was well-received, but he didn't, he wasn't in a non, he wasn't in a an extended multi-year story. So Electra hits, she's a big deal. She's everywhere in the culture and she is only seen in Daredevil comics. And and literally at, at this point I should tell you that Daredevil uh features Electra in such a capacity over these next, you know, this this next year and a half that the book could have justifiably been renamed Daredevil and Electra. It was just as much a showcase for her and her uh, storyline, her character, her conflicts, as it was for Daredevil. She became the narrative of the book. She drove the narrative of the, of the book. 
uh, Ying to, to Daredevil's Yang in the way that Captain America was renamed Captain America and the Falcon briefly. This could have totally been justified in Daredevil and Elektra, okay? Because she becomes the co-star of the book. She is a dynamite, dynamic character. There are forces at play against Matt Murdock in this saga that she intersects with, that she cuts off at the pass. She helps him take on some uh, enemies uh, that, 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 are, that seek to do him wrong. And at one point, she is pitted against him. And she's a, she's a mercenary. She's, you know, a hired hand. She's an, she's an assassin. They, they, they reinstate this time and time again. Now, Daredevil's biggest, most formidable bad guy during this time is a character named Bullseye. And I, I gotta be honest, maybe the best supervillain turn ever. He's, imagine the insanity of the Joker, of the, the Jokers that you have adored the most. Heath Ledger's Joker. That kind of complete insane uh, mind and approach in the body of a lethal uh, martial arts assassin weapons master. And that is what Frank turned Bullseye into. And I'm, I hearkened to Black Widow earlier having a relationship being portrayed with Daredevil along with Karen Page as, as being uh, in, in, in the, the, the female love interest for Matt Murdock at this time. Black Widow is a badass character in the comic book. She is formidable. She can hang out and uh, hold her own with Daredevil. In a key early issue that Frank Miller uh, uh, illustrated, Daredevil and Black Widow go up against Bullseye, and Bullseye throttles, just throttles Black Widow. Matter of fact, it's a cover that I don't think would be portrayed today. He's uh, it would be, it would cause a lot of problems in today's in today's market in 2020. He's uh, uh, got, he's basically, uh, Bullseye is standing over Black Widow, who's got like um, a line around her neck. He's choking her. She's been beat up very badly. It's, it's, it's very graphic. And I, I think it would set off all sorts of manner of, of, of uh, protest and anger in today's market. It's a severely brutal uh, uh, depiction, but Black, Black Widow was bested. Uh, by Bullseye. So again, when you're a kid, you, you measure this stuff. You go, oh, Bullseye's a pretty, pretty formidable guy because he took down, you know, he held his own with Daredevil and he completely took down Black Widow. Well, he is back and forth in this saga. He is a key, key player, as you're going to find out. And in the seminal event, the biggest issue of this run after all of this back and forth is Daredevil 181. I told you earlier, uh, in the back of my car, there is a a death of a character in the back of my mom's car, uh, in the back of our Buick. She drove a Buick. It was a beautiful Saturday afternoon. She had taken me to the comic store because she knew how much I completely live for this stuff. Normally, I would ride my bike, but I had talked my mom into uh, on on her many uh, visits to the, uh, the 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 mall on the weekends. I had talked her into possibly taking me to the comic store where I can get my week's allotment of comic books, and then I would go with her to the mall. And she completely hooked me up, and she took me up to my favorite comic book store at the time, and it was called Comic Castle. Comic Castle in Fullerton, California, and they always had their books on Friday, so by Saturday they had a nice array 
Uh, it wasn't a crazy time in, in, in the comics industry where stuff would sell out and, and, and there, were, there were books that, that were unavailable. Stuff was carried in, 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 in heavy capacity. And so on a Saturday afternoon, Daredevil at this time is the number one solo selling character for Marvel Comics. You know, I'm excited to get my allotment of books. And I walk in and I see that Daredevil, uh, Daredevil 181 is, is a double-sized book. Now, I did not know this because, as I've said in the past, there were not these giant flashing signs that made you aware that there were going to be, uh, you know, that there were going to be these these huge events. You didn't have the previews catalog available to the public whereupon we could make our decision by, you know, by checking these, these uh, you know, by, 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 by checking off a list of events that we should order. Look, there's going to be a big double-sized issue of Daredevil done by your favorite, you know, writer artist team with a glossy cover and it's must miss. No, that didn't exist. There was no previews catalog. It was literally you went to the store and you kind of understood what was happening as the books rolled out. There was no 3-month anticipation that there was a giant event must miss, can't miss. It was just, man, Hey man, I'm getting my latest issue of Daredevil. Wow, here it is. And there it is on the cover. It's, you know, special double-sized issue, Daredevil, Man Without Fear. And there is this image of Daredevil juxtaposed in the background and in the foreground. Elektra and Bullseye are facing off. They're having a, this giant fight. So this is the centerpiece of the week. Trust me when I tell you that this is absolutely the centerpiece of the week. There is no book that is more significant this week than Daredevil 181. It is a uh, it is a big big freaking deal, and we uh, we are all extremely happy to be encountering Daredevil on this Saturday afternoon. I grab it, I put it in my bag, I race into the car with my mom. I'm going to accompany her to the mall. We are off to the mall, and. When we get there, the beautiful Buena Park Mall, my mom parks in front of the May Company, which I'm not even sure if there are May Companies anymore, but at this time, we are parked in front of the May Company, and she says, hey, do you just want to stay in the car, or do you want to go in with me? And I said, hey, if, if I could just stay in the car, I, I, I would just like to, you know, read my comics, and she's like, that's fine. So my mom leaves me and she heads off into the mall for X amount of time. The first book on my pile that I am going to consume is Daredevil with Bullseye and Electra and double-sized and written and drawn by my by my idol Frank Miller. So I'm flipping through the book. I'm I'm engaged. This is very exciting. Electra and and Daredevil are wrapped up in this ridiculous crosstown billionaire versus billionaire tycoons. Kingpin wants a wants reparations for for uh, uh, being taken down. Uh, but his hand was forced the previous issue by Matt Murdock slash Daredevil because Daredevil had saved his wife. All these machinations are moving. Bullseye breaks out of prison. And Bullseye is looking to settle the score, and he wants to kill 
the assassin known as Electra. He does all his backtracking. He does his investigations. He works his way through the streets. He finds out that she has a contract to kill uh, Foggy Nelson, Matt Murdock's partner, because Kingpin wants to have reparations for what happened to him. And so he's going to make Matt Murdock suffer by killing Foggy. Electra has accepted this contract. And one of the things that is so interesting that you've got to understand as we're you know, going through this journey is uh, a few issues earlier when Kingpin is looking to hire uh, a new assassin. He is going, he is, he is, he is being, uh, he is talking to his, uh, to kind of his lieutenant who's giving him uh, options for who Kingpin could be hiring in order to carry out this latest mission. And on the last page of Daredevil 177, Kingpin is talking to his lieutenant who's got all these pictures on the, on, on, on the wall, these slides that are skipping by, and there's several of Electra, and he informs Kingpin. He says, this guy's just all in silhouette. He's an insignificant character. The, the idea is that Kingpin is evaluating names that he can use in his campaign you know, of death and vengeance. And the lieutenant says, so we checked her out. Her name is Electra. She's a mercenary, a bounty hunter, and a killer for hire. As you can see, she is the best at it since Bullseye. The best at it since Bullseye. And he's doing time. Any instructions? So we, the reader, have just been informed that Bullseye is equal to Electra, and Electra is equal to Bullseye in their capacity to kill, to... Uh, murder they are formidable and we've already seen bullseye is has has taken daredevil to the greatest lengths of 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 his abilities he has pushed him in previous issues where he has barely daredevil has barely escaped with his life so here we are being told by another party that these two are equally paired and uh and so electra is engaged kingpin hires electra to kill foggy nelson and before she kills him in Daredevil 181, she has accepted this contract from Kingpin. And again, this just furthers the conflict that she had, and which is why this was so riveting, is Matt Murdock, the love of his life, was really a ruthless monster. We loved her. She's sexy. She's loyal to Matt. She's formidable. She can hold her own with any man that has come through the comic. She, is, uh, she comes and goes as she please. She names her terms. And in this case, she has taken on a, a contract hit by the Kingpin to kill Matt Murdock's best friend. She reaches Foggy Nelson. She informs him he's going to die. And what rivets her for just one moment is when Foggy says, I recognize you. We went to college. You went to college with Matt. You're Electra Nachios. And that pauses her for just a minute. And as I've said, Bullseye has been tracking her this entire issue. He wants to take her down. He has heard of this Electra, that she is an assassin that has been taking his contracts. He's not as in demand now that he's out of jail. He's not as in demand because Electra is in demand and she has become the premier contract killer on the streets. Suddenly from the shadows, he emerges because he got enough names and enough leads that he understood that she had a contract and that she was going to take it out on Foggy. He shows up. He emerges from the shadows and we see her, we see him behind Electra and Electra pauses because she notices that 
there's someone else in the room in the shadows and bullseye absolutely hears foggy say you're matt murdoch's girl you're you were his girlfriend we went to college together and he's starting to piece together that matt murdoch and daredevil are the same dude she pauses as bullseye and electra erupt in this amazing hand-to-hand combat as only frank miller who, who could depict it he was the the absolute best action choreographer he is the john wick guys he is the david leach he is uh he, he, he he's he's the way these stunt coordinators are taking over uh hollywood because they depict the very best action you know this is frank miller he hit the scene and what he did better than anybody else was hand-to-hand combat choreographed action that is one of the reasons you came and stayed and so bullseye and electra have this huge battle they're throwing each other out of windows falling down uh you know buildings uh flipping onto clotheslines holding on for dear life and what happens guys as i am flipping this book in the back of my mom's buick on a saturday afternoon in the buena park mall is i turn the page and bullseye rests electra's signature weapon as i've said she uses the size sai to uh to to as her signature weapon that's where she impales people she throws them she absolutely 100 percent stabs people all the time with these for a year we have seen her use these in a way that you've never really seen frank was smart nobody had these in comics he gave them to electra they became her signature bullseye beats the crap out of her he literally knee to the face uh kick to the jaw I mean, she is holding on for dear life. It, it's the first time we have felt Electra is struggling. She's losing the upper hand. She is. She lands a couple blows on Bullseye. She cuts him. She, you know, she 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 punches him. But he is relentless. He slices her throat with one of his razor sharp cards that he throws at her. And then once once she's bleeding out from the throat, it's like, oh my gosh! And you guys, I have to, yeah, you know, I am, uh, I am thirteen years old can't drive that's why i had to hitch a ride with mom on this day i did not bike ride but i am experiencing this in the back of this you know i look up there's all these trees the blenna park mall at the time is beautifully you know landscaped it's this calm calm afternoon and i i am looking as my fan favorite character the reason that i am so addicted to this comic is getting impaled on her own side by bullseye it is a magnificent moment the way it's laid out designed it is silent there's no sound effect and the entire page is silent as bullseye drops her and here's the thing she stumbles she she stumbles she is bleeding out from the gut you see it frank masterfully he 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 has these panels that cascade down where it's just a shot of her feet then her full body falls into frame, then she rises, then she falls into frame again. It, it literally depicts how she is staggering to her death. Bullseye is just watching at this point. He knows that, I've done my deed. You're going to bleed out. You're going to die. She staggers into the streets. She crawls and makes her way home to the arms of Mar- Matt Murdock, where on the steps of his brownstone, she dies. And there are people in the crowd that are watching, passerbys, there's appears to be a nun people are gasping at this beautiful woman dying in matt murdoch's arms on the steps of his 
New York brownstone, and then we see there's a character who's lighting a cigarette in the background, and he's got a hat on, and he's trying to obscure his identity, but we know it's it's Bullseye. Bullseye is watching with great glee as Elektra has crawled all the way back to the arms of Matt Murdock, and now he knows for certain Matt Murdock and Daredevil are the same guy, the Foggy Nelson lead, Elektra crawling all the way back to this, this specific apartment. He knows this is my guy, and all Bullseye wants is to kill Daredevil. He is not going to get that chance because in the same issue, one of the greatest uh, kind of moments of vengeance, Daredevil and Bullseye, obviously Daredevil hunts down Bullseye, goes after him. They have a another huge battle that carries over into the streets and they are breaking each other through glass, falling out of buildings, jumping onto rooftops, and they finally get on a clothesline, a power line, and Bullseye loses his footing. And Daredevil grabs him, and Bullseye is laughing at the fact that there's no way you're going to drop me. That's not who you are. And uh, you're going to save me, just like when the train tracks almost ran over me. And, and again, we've seen that in earlier issues. And in the coldest, most callous act I had seen any of my heroes perform, and you cheered it, uh, Daredevil drops him from what appears to be, you know, between 17, 30 stories high. And... Uh, then we see Kingpin burn Bullseye's file because word has reached that Bullseye is no longer available. So Kingpin's pissed because Elektra's gone and Bullseye's gone. But let me tell you, I did not expect to open up Daredevil 181 and encounter the death of my fan favorite, the death of Elektra Nachios, or as we had just got, come to know her as Elektra. And Elektra, when she staggers and falls and crawls to Matt Murdock, this powerful female figure that we have rallied around, dies in Matt's arm. She 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 wandered all the way home to die in his arms and Bullseye watches it and I, I, you guys let me get back to how Electra had electrified the moment, become the, the main commissioned character. The prices on Electra books were skyrocketing. You were so happy that you bought them off the spinner rack or bought them, you know, early in the day. The direct market had grown during this time that I was no longer getting Daredevil uh, primarily from my uh, Foodland, my my market. I bought her first appearance at Foodland on Euclid and Catella, and here we are. Uh, one that was issue 168, 181, double size. Didn't see it coming. I'm buying straight off the rack at Comic Castle in Fullerton. I am reading it in the back, and I am fighting back tears. I am upset. I am emotional. I cannot believe this character has been taken from me. It's real. They bury her. Frank wants you to know. He wants you to know. He does an entire page of the doctors performing an autopsy autopsy on her. This is when deaths were real. Deaths mattered. This was part of Frank's master plan. Whatever happens after issue 181, because Frank has another year of this saga to tell, none of it matters because at that moment, he killed your favorite character in comics. He killed your favorite superheroine, your favorite superhero. And Matt Murdock became tragically uh, changed forever, spiraling down this uh, hole of despair, again, that would uh, carry on through the next year as this, this adventure kind of has, a, has an unexpected twist. But she is dead. Make no doubt, Elektra is dead, killed, impaled on her own weapon. And I was a wreck. Uh, I knew 
you know, they've got her in the they've got her in 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 the hospital with the autopsy. Matt Murdock is so infuriated that he kills or not kills, he drops his nemesis. We would find out Bullseye's fate months later. Um and and uh and and you know, Bullseye is when I say we would find out his fate, Daredevil encounters Bullseye months later, but in this issue you do see that Bullseye is uh, basically every bone in his body was broken from the fall when Matt dropped him. And at the end of the issue, uh, Matt Murdock is standing at Electra's gravesite, and Bullseye is in a full body cast in a hospital. They would re- there there will be an issue where Daredevil goes to visit Bullseye in the hospital. That is crazy amazing. But death of Electra, Daredevil one eighty one, back of the car. Uh, ruined my day, ruined my weekend. My mom wanted to know why my mood had changed, my cheery, upbeat, yeah, thanks for being in the comic store, mom, I'm so excited. Had, I was maudlin, I was blue, I was gray. It was the first time a comic book character, a fictional character, had affected me in an emotional manner. Uh, I, I, I mean, I was a wreck. And it really, it pissed me off. I, I, I went to the comic store uh, the very next weekend just to have people to talk about it with because at 5 o'clock, three, between 3 and 5 on a Saturday afternoon, there is no internet, there is no Twitter to retweet, retweet, retreat to, <laughs> retweet, retreat, and talk to your friends. What did you think about that? Um, I didn't have a whole lot of friends I could call and talk about comic books. that The, the comic, book, comic book stores had functioned as clubhouses by then. So this was a masterpiece by Frank that he had been assembling from the very beginning, putting these characters together, having them fall in love, having them have these consequences. Electra made Daredevil a little more gray. He did some kind of uh, darker deeds uh, in her presence. As a result of her, she was conflicted with him. I mean, she's about to kill his friend. She's she's so loyal to the cause and her uh, vocation as an assassin and so caught up in being the very best that she's about to kill his friend. She's deterred when Foggy recognizes her. Then Bullseye overhears it. The action explodes. We never find out if she would have indeed killed Foggy, and it doesn't matter because as a result of her conflict with Bullseye, she dies. So the process, the grieving of Electra for a 13-year-old Rob Liefeld was uh, pretty, pretty crazy. Uh, I was blue. I was maudlin. I was gray. I went to the comic store. Everybody, the, the thing that you talk to everybody about. Could you, could you not believe that? Could you believe? The very next convention, months later, everyone's still talking about Daredevil, Death of Electra, Frank Miller. Uh, he spiked the ball. He knocked it out of the park. Expectations. Who knew this character that he introduced? Because we'd seen characters. Like I said, Wolverine. Wolverine was introduced in Hulk goes on to be a figurehead, a key character in the X-Men comics. And there's no killing him. He's now going by, by, by 81. Wolverine has been in comic books for about seven years. Going strong, gaining popularity. It was inconceivable to kill a character as popular as Elektra. That's what I need to underscore. I told you she could have been co-leading this book. It was inconceivable. It was inconceivable that you would kill a character who was as popular as as she was. She powered this book, her storyline, to the top. So now, what do you do? And there was just shock. It was shock. It's the most shocking death I'd ever encountered. Everybody who was collecting comics at that time uh, got hit in the nutsack. Our, 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 we were short of breath. I know that my uh, situation was like so many others. And again, as a teenager, you're like, wow, this is what it feels like. This is crazy. 
and she's gone. No more Electra. And so that was a giant uh, moment where I saw the power of comic books, the power of how an author could make me twist and, 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 and give me all these conflicted emotions. And it's oddly enough, about a year earlier, uh, a, a, another huge death in comics that I did not see coming was one that, as I said already, I would, uh, that I would encounter you know, at the Carl's Jr. because this was the death of Phoenix in the X-Men. They had been building towards this giant dark Phoenix storyline. She had been corrupted. Uh, this this uh, man named Wingard who turned out to be an old, old foe of the X-Men uh, who, who was enjoying watching them uh, twist in the wind. Uh, Mastermind had made this giant ploy in conjunction with the Hellfire Club. Uh, Wingard had twisted Dark Phoenix, or Jean Grey, and unleashed uh, Dark Phoenix. Her, her darkest impulses had been awakened. And so for the, basically, from issue kind of uh, in the 130s on, 125, when we really, we, we kept getting re-emphasized how powerful Phoenix was. Jean Grey was becoming troubled in the X-Men and everybody was worried about her. Cyclops is worried about her. Logan is worried about her. Professor Xavier is worried about her. Well, she finally snaps. And issue 135, 136, she is pitted against the X-Men and she really just dismisses them. They, These characters who had become your favorites, who had taken down Magneto and Proteus and Sauron and Moses Magnum and toe-to-toe -to -toe with this Canadian powerhouse team called Alpha Flight. Now they were being tossed around like ragdolls by an enraged Jean Grey who has crossed over from Phoenix to Dark Phoenix. Her, her colors are no longer green and gold. She is red and gold. Her face is dark and ashen, and she is vicious. The only thing that drops her is this huge standoff with Professor Xavier, where we learn the extent of his power. And he fortunately comes out on the other end where he is able to shut her down and drop her. And we think, well, hey, the story is going to have a reasonable resolve. Dark Phoenix has finally, after two issues of all of this terrible conflict, she has been uh, defeated at the hands of the man who recruited her. And, you know, there was a sweet uh, kind of nostalgia and a, and, a, and, a, and a sweet kind of tie in there with X-Men number one, which, you know, you got Cyclops, Jean Grey, and Professor X are all from X-Men number one. They're, they're, they're Stan Lee, Jack Kirby creations. And now in the hands of Claremont and Byrne and Austin, we see this giant conflict with Professor Xavier and his most powerful student ever. And he barely barely comes out on the other end and we see how it tasks him but there's a twist they are summoned before a cosmic court uh by the shiar which is an alien race the the, the x-men have had friendly operations with and we meet again the formidable imperial guard which is marvel's version of the legion of superheroes and they are badass. Anytime they showed up, I would get so excited. But X-Men 137 is kind of like the trial of Jean Grey. They have summoned her aboard a starship. And as she was Dark Phoenix, she did some very bad things. She destroyed a world. Now, we'd seen people like Galactus eat worlds in Stan and Jack's Fantastic Four. But 
this was kind of a temper, temper tantrum that Jean had taken when she flew off and absorbed an entire planet. And we saw the people of that planet cry out and they're hug, hugging each other as she destroys them. So, you know, now they were, I think John Burns called them broccoli people. They look like green broccoli heads. But nonetheless, we now learn that that is a no-no, boys and girls. We do not go around eating planets because you are going to get judged by a cosmic tribunal. And they are brought before the Shi'ar and Lalandra, who has had a affair with Professor Xavier. She's in love with Xavier. Xavier has strong feelings for her. And they have uh, kind of got this unrequited love. She apologizes. She's like, as, as much as I love you, Charles, I have to be the magistrate. I have to be royalty to my people. And between the Cree and the Skrull and the Shi'ar, they're all present. They all want Jean Grey to die. Well, wisely enough, Charles invokes like the rights of combat. We basically want to defend Jean by trial by combat. And so again, when I picked this book up, this is when I had to get to comic book stores on my 10 speed. And I biked everywhere. I had tons of stamina. And when it was something I wanted, that there was nothing holding me back. My bike would take me from Anaheim to Huntington Beach to visit a comic book store called The Land of Oohs and Oz. It would take me to Fullerton, to Comic Castle. They would be entire Saturday planned out excursions. I would leave my house at 11, sometimes get back at 3 or 4, depending on the length of the sojourn. If it was Huntington Beach, it was definitely an 11 to 4 day because that took me about... 80 minutes to bike down there and then 80 minutes back. And then when I was in the comic store, I'd always, you know, spend at least an hour, hour and a half tooling around. And then I would generally get a meal on the way back. I had had a special uh, cart put on, not not a front cart, but a, a below, uh, you know, the railing, kind of a, a slide uh, panel that I could uh, slide my bag of comics into while I rode home. Anaheim, uh, Euclid, and... Uh, Euclid and Ball is where I would start my sojourn all the way to Fullerton off Amaridge and Harbor Boulevard. This is probably six, seven mile bike ride. Uh, really, really fun. My mind would just be wandering, telling stories as I would ride to the comic store. Again, it's a Saturday. I'm getting my new comics. They were generally racked on Fridays. I'm in school. I don't drive. This was the dominion of weekend adventures in comic books. I had, this was a big week. I remember there was a lot of great books that came out. The Avengers was great. Hulk was great. Rom was great. But what do we got? A double-sized adventure. X-Men 137, Fate of Jean Grey, okay? We knew we'd been building up to this. We did not know the outcome. We did not know, uh, you know, who would be facing off against whom. And the Watcher is in this book observing the events uh, of what goes down because as I said, Charles Xavier invokes the, you know, basically uh, rights, you know, to, 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 to fight for Gene's life. They, he invokes this, this Shi'ar right of combat rule. And I am discovering this as I'm pulling my French fries out of my container and eating a burger and soaking and, 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 and soaking up a soda uh, because I have gotten almost home, three quarters of the way home is the Anaheim Mall. I'm hungry. I need some lunch. This is where I'm going to be big, you know, big boy, big 12-year-old, 
you know, in, in, in control of my destiny. I got my lunch money. I spend it on comic books and whatever's left over. I'm going to go and I'm going to order my, my, my hamburger and fries at Carl's Jr. There's an open booth. Man, this is just the best day ever. I slide into the booth. I take my comic books out of the plastic bag. X-Men 137 is my first destination. That is what I'm going to encounter. And here we go. Double pager. The X-Men transported onto the Shi'ar warship. And this is where we get the Kree. We get the Skrulls. We get the Shi'ar all accusing Gene of these crimes as Phoenix, as Dark Phoenix. And Xavier is desperately trying to bargain for any way to, to get Gene to live. So by invoking the right of combat, they have bought themselves some time. And I'm flipping through this book, and, and this is a fantastic interlude as each X-Men is taken private quarters above the warship as the granted, they are granted this trials of combat. They are going to meet the Imperial Guard on the moon for this showdown, and whoever wins determines the fate of Phoenix. If the Shi'ar win, Jean dies. If the X-Men win, you know, they get to take her home. And that's basically the terms of the combat. And I am flipping through this, but Colossus and Nightcrawler and Wolverine are all in their private quarters, showering, getting ready for the night, each talking about the big day that lie ahead. They are weighing heavily on them. Like, what if I die in combat saving Jean Grey? What is the cost of that? Do I love this woman? Is she a good enough friend and teammate to me that I am going to put my life at risk? So these are great questions. These are awesome debates we're having as as reader and, and, and fan with the authors, Claremont, Byrne, Austin, in this amazing book. They roll out this giant conflict. They emerge on the blue area of the moon, which is where the Watcher lives, and he observes. He never interferes. He just observes. And we get all these tremendous throwdowns. Gladiator and Colossus. Gladiator is the de facto Superman of the Marvel Universe at this time. He is the echo of Superboy slash Superman from the Legion of the Superheroes. He has the cool mohawk. He kind of looks like a purple version of Jack Kirby's Omax. So I'm already completely engaged. He and Colossus have a giant throwdown. All of these other uh, different various Imperial Guards members uh, face off against the X-Men, Beast, Angel, Wolverine, Colossus, Nightcrawler, Jean Grey, Cyclops, Storm. And one by one, guys, it looks like the X-Men are, are getting the upper hand, but one by one, they are falling. The Imperial Guard is winning. Uh, Gladiator emerges from a giant throwdown with Colossus, dramatically rising from the rubble while Colossus is still laying unconscious under the rubble. And this is when you start getting the feeling that this isn't going the way that we had hoped as the reader. Things are not going well for our heroes, whom we have followed through all of these amazing adventures in the Savage Land, their international journey to Canada, to China, to Scotland, to battle Proteus. The, the X-Men had been this international uh, book that, that traveled all over the Marvel international, you know, waters and grounds. And so as a reader, we had followed them and, and they were never defeated. They were never uh, handed their butts, their asses like they were here. Magneto, they, they escaped Magneto at, at, at his best, at his pow most powerful. But the Imperial Guard was getting the best of the X-Men. And then Jean kind of unleashes her Phoenix Fury and everyone starts freaking out because, uh-oh, uh -oh, what if Jean awakens the phoenix again she could cons consume all of them on the moon we've already seen her consume a world so x-men and imperial guard together begin to combat and and take sides 
And what occurs is Jean powers down, escapes with Cyclops, Scott Summers, the love of her life, who she had been loyal to. Wolverine had been trying to put the moves on her, and she was semi-interested for the better part of many, many years. But she and Scott are having their final love moment, but you don't realize it. But the words she's saying, it feels like this is the end. She and Scott, uh, she, she, they, 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 they escape into a, a small enclave. They, they cover themselves. They obscure themselves from everyone. And that is when Jean says, it's been decided and we're not going to do this. Too, too many people are getting hurt. I'm not worth it essentially. And in, and, and Scott is pleading with her, don't do this. And what she does unbeknownst to Scott is because they are battling on the remnants of a, of a base uh, that has weaponry, and it's, at one point they stumble stumble through what they realize is the Watcher's actual home. Like you see briefly where he the dude lives. She activates a hidden uh, weapon that she lifts telekinetically behind her that Scott can't see, and she kills herself. So she offers up the greatest sacrifice, and she is completely uh, disintegrated and demolished. And Scott is screaming, and Phoenix is gone. Jean Grey is gone. The X-Men don't have the Dark Phoenix Jean Grey problem anymore. She took care of it. She removed it. This didn't move me in the way that Elektra would move me a year later. It was great. It was unexpected. It was tout. It was like, wow, this is, you're uptight. Like I said, seeing the X-Men drop one by one, the Imperial Guard, you don't want to find out that your characters aren't formidable. They've, as I've said, they've taken on so many comers. They have, you know, put so many opponents down and they are losing if it was a if it was a movie you'd hear the tragic i mean this would be this sad part of the sad score the sad score of the john williams soundtrack would be playing as the x-men are falling one by one and uh gene gray ultimately sacrifices herself and gets everybody off the hook right now there was tremendous tragedy about how this all went down, and that's for another, uh, you know, kind of behind-the-scenes episode where what you saw in print wasn't what you were intended to see, and apparently, you know, it was Jim Shooter's call that Jean Grey could not survive this. They wanted to, um, in pages that would be revealed later, they wanted to have her be given some sort of lobotomy that resets her almost back to X-Men number one, where Jean Grey is young and new and impressionable and gets to know everybody again. But that is not the course that this story took. And of course, she's dead. So she's no longer with us. And the next issue, X-Men 138, is a wonderful retelling of the entire X-Men history as they gather around Jean's gravesite for her funeral. So you had the death of Jean Grey, which happens a year before the death of Elektra. Neither of them are advertised. They're not a multi-part crossover epic with six other intersecting titles interacting with them, which is how it would be today. It was sly. It was not expected. You discovered it as you turned the page. You didn't get advance notice. You showed up. You were hooked. This was part of your serial storytelling. And Jean is gone. And Elektra was gone. And these are, I think, in everyone's mind, the two biggest, most significant deaths in the Bronze Age. It defines an era for an entire group of fans. These books are still holding on to their values in terms of you just can't waltz in and 
buy them for two bucks. You're going to pay somewhere between 20 bucks for a reader copy to a hundred bucks for a really juicy, nice, pristine copy. And then don't get me started if you are slabbing and grading and doing all the different collectible aspects with these books. Phoenix, Electra, two strong females, two strong females that drove narratives in their book for a great deal of years and time have 100%, you know, uh, pulled the wool over our eyes as readers. We did not see it coming. What the heck? Jean Grey, I mean, when with Jean, she's been around since, you know, early Marvel. Electra, at least, was was given about a year and a half, uh, but, but, I mean, completely a product of the late 70s, early 80s, but Jean Grey is a huge part of Marvel's history. She's gone. And, you know, the team would recover, the team would move on, or would they? Uh, but at the time, these deaths seemed permanent. And again, you know, chomping down on my burger, I was unsettled. I did not see where this was going, but I was more unsettled even than Jean's death by the fact that the X-Men were so handedly defeated by the Imperial Guard. And, and it was a really, like, tragic, like, their best isn't good enough. There are other forces out there that if they chose to, could exert their will and defeat and uh, bring great consequences to your hero. And it's kind of humbling. It's kind of cool. Now, there were obviously other deaths. And I'm going to go to the first death that I had encountered in the Bronze Age, which you're not going to see coming. You, uh, Some of you are not going to be aware of this. But um, Aquaman, as written by David Michelini and illustrated by John, uh, Jim Aparo. Aquaman was a huge book uh, for me as a kid. I never missed it. He had been highly marketed with multiple cartoons. There was those cartoons on his own that he shared with Superman, Batman in their kind of adventure hour in the late 60s, early 70s. He he threw the balls of water. He talked to the, you know, the, 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 sea creatures with his tele telepathic circles. He, he and Aqualads were buds. They they rode their, their giant seahorses. Aquaman was in the culture. He was on TV. He was in the Super Friends. So his book had some notice. It had some juice. He appeared in Adventure Comics, and he and Aqualad were like a father-son team. Aqualad was very much like, you know, Aquaman was a father to him. In Adventure Comics, in 1977, 452, I grabbed this book and very dramatic cover. Mag Black Menta is, I mean, he, he is A-list bad guy, especially after this issue. He is giving the thumbs down like in a gladiator ring as Aqualad has a trident that he's about to impale Aquaman with. And on this cover, it says Aquaman versus Aqualad, a novel length sea spectacular. So this is pretty awesome and it opens the splash page aquaman is throwing these opponents against sea walls and sea caves and battling them as they fight to take him in there's i mean it just opens with furious fisticuffs and aquaman and aqualad are summoned in atlantis because black manta has seized control and aquaman had a son with mira the love of his life and it is arthur jr little arthur who by the looks of this depiction you know, is anywhere between two and three years old. He looks like a little version of Aquaman. He's in yellow and green, echoing Aquaman's yellow and orange and green costume. He's in orange and green shorts, shirt. Black Mana has put him in a sphere and no water because being a son of Aquaman and Mira, he breathes water. He has cut off. He is in an 
a dome where the oxygen has uh, is filling up and and in five minutes he will die he will suffocate they they tell you black manta says unless you do my bidding and you fight aqualad your son is going to die and i'm looking at it right now it is so grim this kid has got his hand on his throat and he's choking and black manta lays the terms down and he basically says so get at it aqualad kill aquaman aquaman kill aqualad Let's make this happen. Aqualad says, there's no way I'm doing this. He flies towards Manta because we as the reader have to see there's some resistance. But he is electrocuted as he approaches uh, Black Manta. Black Manta has the, uh, you know, the, the, the control of this situation here and he is forcing them. And the scary thing is when Aqualad, who does not want to fight Aquaman, suddenly meets Aqualad who apologizes. He says, I'm sorry, Minnow, but that's my son. And he just starts kicking the shit out of Aqualad because, you know, come on, man. Uh, I think Aquaman's like my son first over overall. That's what we would do as fathers. I have three kids. I'm going to fight for my kids to survive. And uh, so Aqualad is taken back by the fact that, wow, this father figure is going to kill me for his genetic son. It's brutal. It's grim. They go after it. They swipe at each other. And literally it says, kill or be killed. Kill or be killed. And finally, Aquaman gets a squid that has been caged nearby to break free with all his arms and grab the controls that is filling up Arthur Curry Jr.'s sphere with oxygen because he needs water. And we were told the page before, in five minutes, he will die. He, the, the squid destroys the controls. So Manta now no longer controls the spear that is choking out young Aquaman's son. Aquaman throws the trident from his conflict with Aqualad into the sphere, shattering it, letting it fill up with water. And you are seeing a lifeless child. The, the Jim Apero is a great illustrator. His, his gestures are powerful. We know by looking that it appears that Arthur is dead. Black Manta you know, blasts a wall, causes some rubble to fall and gets the hell out of there. Aquaman saves people from the falling wall, which is again taking up time that he could be getting to his son. But uh, Arthur Jr. is carried to him dead. The people in the arena inform him, we're sorry. And you see Aquaman holding his dead son, two, three years max, and then Aqualad says, join me. We have to find Mira and inform Mira what's happened. Um, he gives the body to the giant squid that broke free of the cage to take the controls out of Manta's hands. And he urges Aqualad to come with him. He said earlier, I'm sorry, Minnow, that's my son. And then he says, come on, Minnow. And that's when Aqualad says, I'm not going anywhere with you ever again. You just tried to murder me. You just tried to kill me. I think it's better off that we separate and not know each other ever again. And the end of the issue, Aquaman's basically like, have it your way. I'm off to kill Black Manta. He killed my son. I'm like, they killed a kid. They killed a kid. Adventure Comics. <laughs> Adventure Comics, number 452. It would be the last time Aquaman appeared in this iteration of Adventure Comics. The very next month... Because I think they knew the buzz this thing was going to increase uh, uh, and, and, and create. Aquaman is in his own book. 
It's called Aquaman 57. His, he's back to his old restored number numbering. He is exiting Adventure Comics, and he is in his own book. And on the cover, there are squids holding Aquaman back as Manta taunts him and says, First, I killed your son, Aquaman. Now I'm going to kill you. Whoa! So death. Death was... That's 1977. Uh, 1980 is when Jean Grey dies. 1981 is, is Electra. So... As a kid, these awesome comic book characters, these heroes that I follow, they are dealing with some grim consequences. The Aquaman one, I cannot underscore how disturbing it is. They killed a kid. This child dies at the hands of a supervillain who literally chokes him out, suffocates him. He even says, I'm going to suffocate him. It is bolded. Suffocate. He is suffocated. Other notable deaths along the way in the Bronze Age. Uh, the death of Captain Marvel by Jim Starlin was a graphic novel, a standalone graphic novel, and you didn't really understand what to expect. And here is the brilliance of that. After Elektra is brutally murdered by a supervillain, after Phoenix falls at the hands of an entire planetary force that is about to exert their will, and she uh, gives up and, and, uh, and, 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 and kills herself by summoning the ray that is going to evaporate her, uh, and, and all in front of the Watcher who's recording all this, uh, then we get Captain Marvel who dies of cancer. I'll just skip to the end. All the heroes of the Marvel Universe have to watch their friend as cancer eats away and kills kills him from the inside out. And, you know, having a father who fought a 21-year battle with cancer, uh, it, it can be painful to watch what it does to your loved ones. And with the death of Captain Marvel, and Jim Starlin had really named made his name... Um, on his run of Captain Marvel prior to then doing Morlock and Thanos and all of that. Captain Marvel was kind of the start of his uh, cosmic, um, you know, him becoming the king of all things cosmic. And, you know, Death of Captain Marvel, you expect, well, this is going to be like this huge cataclysmic event. And you didn't expect how sweet and sorrowful and how poignant that Jim would... Uh, handle it in that uh, again this is not he is not felled at the hands of some giant supervillain with all his cosmic powers they cannot stand that he is uh, succumbing to an incurable cancer that eventually takes him it is a beautiful story and um, the, the structure and the characterization within and the sorrow that the characters feel as they gather knowing that this cosmic force this guy who has you know defied so many cosmic foes is felled um by you know again it, it it's complicated he got infected because he was battling a nuclear powered character and that characters the radiation everything you know it's not thanos that kills him you know it's cancer very creative, very unexpected, very poignant. Um, so, lots of deaths. Tara, Teen Titans, is somebody who we hated. She's an implant by Deathstroke uh, in the Teen Titans to betray them, and she ultimately finds her demise at the end of this epic Judas contract. But by now, you know, the deaths are piling up, and they're not as consequen consequential. We didn't like Tara. We loved Jean Grey. We adored and loved Elektra. But now we are dealing with the fallout of what seems like um, a fair amount of characters who are uh, falling by the wayside. And by the time we get to Crisis on Infinite Earths, where 
you're promised change worlds are going to change people are going to die we famously have the cover to issue seven where superman is holding supergirl who is dead uh you had to have a real big connection with supergirl for that to matter i was one of those people who i like supergirl funny enough in focus on george perez george perez recounts what led to the killing of supergirl now here's the deal she dies in seven and the flash dies in eight they both die heroically battling the anti-monitor and all the fallout from crisis but uh supergirl was kind of the distraction she's the big death you'd been promised supergirl's the big deal she just had a movie supergirl the movie was out with helen slater why am i telling you this because in uh george perez's interview in focus on george perez released in 1985 a great interview conducted by heidi heidi mcdonald with george perez george talks about that they had submitted a list uh they had submitted a list to dc marv wolfman had submitted submitted a list of people that he was looking forward to killing significant deaths that would make their mark and supergirl the movie comes out in the summer of 1984 and i just kindly it flopped everything you will read about it is it 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 did not have the magic it flopped it famously uh did not even come close to touching the success of the christopher reeve movies even though it was tied directly into them had the same producers supergirl uh, Helen Slater. It may be your favorite movie. I enjoyed it. It just did not, people did not line up at the cinemas. It was not a hit. The reason I'm saying this is because George specifically mentions this in the interview that when Supergirl was on the list given to the publisher of DC Comics at that time, Jeanette Kahn, she looked at it and said, uh, not so fast. Like, we're, we're going to hold off on this. But later that summer, Supergirl the movie comes out and it tanks. And again, I love to give this to you guys. You know, as close as I can, George tells Heidi that he remembers the day that they were told that, oh yeah, Supergirl, she, she's uh, she's okay now. Uh, she's okay to kill. Right here, George Perez, focus on George Perez, 1985. Yes, Supergirl was a question mark. As far as the death list was concerned, Marv had made a death list, sent it to Jeanette Kahn, the publisher of DC Comics, and there were some people who crossed it off saying, you know, this could have potential, but this is problematic. She had a question mark next to her name. She was uh, kind of a to-be-determined. It was all dependent on whether Supergirl the movie was a success the year prior. She dies the summer of 1985 in crisis. That would be, let's say George is drawing that three months earlier. So instead of June or July, he's drawing it in April or May, or maybe even closer to the deadline. But they were informed fairly immediately uh, it was dependent on the success of the Supergirl movie. Needless to say, one week after the Supergirl movie came out, she was perfectly checked off the list and cleared to die in crisis. So she, uh, Heidi McDonald then says, so she was warm food. And George says, yes, the woman is definitely going to be gator food. Uh, so so um, again, he he the, the, sometimes these are how these things are determined. She was a, they needed somebody big to die, a big selling point, and Supergirl was a, Seminal. She was a big, I'd say a C-plus character, but because of the association with Superman, it would resonate. So Superman holding Supergirl on the cover of Crisis on Infinite Earths. That is marketing death. It echoes the cover of X-Men 136, where Cyclops is holding Marvel girl, Jean Grey Phoenix, in his arms. They both are semi-based on an Odin holding Thor, Jack Kirby cover. All these homages have have some sourcing that goes back to, well, I've seen that image is there, I've seen that image there. No one knows if they're looking directly at that image or they're invoking it from their memory, but all three covers are strikingly similar. 
but the Supergirl one really invokes because again the John Byrne George Perez rivalry. So Supergirl's is in the arms dead in Superman uh, as Superman holds her on the cover, and it's a great heroic death. George and Marv pulled it off great, but it's just funny that she was earmarked because of her marketability. But if the movie was a success, that's not Supergirl that Superman is holding. The very next issue, Crisis on Infinite Earths eight finds the Flash dying. And I gotta be honest, I didn't see that one coming. Flash dying was a big deal. And what mitigated it slightly was the fact that there are many versions of the Flash. Uh, there was already Kid Flash, and then who would immediately become the successor. So Barry Allen, the, the Flash that I grew up with, dying, tragically sacrificing himself uh, in battle to Anti-Monitor, defiant, great death, fantastic death, was immediately... Uh, I opened the door for the new Flash where Wally West would become his successor, no longer Kid Flash. He was the Flash. So it had a uh, a nice pivot, a nice, uh, that, that death opened a door. Um, long story short, so many deaths we could cover. And by the late 80s, you are being asked to call a number to kill or save Robin the Boy Wonder because they made an entire call-in event these uh, these these call-in numbers, call in and talk to your band, call in and talk to your movie star. There's a message waiting for you became the rage in the 80s. Uh, the image guys looked into getting their own numbers and we were going to buy an ad in the comic book magazines and do this. So we were very familiar with this. But the death of Robin decided by fans, would you kill him or would you let him live? Uh, call this number, determine his fate. That is where death, we are out of the bronze era at that point. But that is kind of the largest exploitation of death. It is the culmination of everything I've discussed with you here today. These deaths, death of Gwen Stacy, death of Elektra, death of Jean Grey, death of Captain Marvel, Terra, um, uh, Supergirl, Flash. There's there's deaths I'm not going to cover here, but it doesn't get bigger than Elektra and Jean Grey. They are the 1A and 1B uh, deaths. If you want to go Gwen Stacy is kicking it all off. Not going to argue with you, especially Spider-Man fans. That must have rocked them to their core as much as Electra rocked me, upset my day, as much as 180, uh, 137 of X-Men upset me. Um, Supergirl was a rousing marketing success. Flash was a giant pivot. Uh, De- Death of Captain Marvel was maybe the most poignant and 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 given the hype around if you put a death on. That was the first one. It's marketed. You're buying something that says the death of... And then Cancer, great curveball, magnificent work by Jim Starlin. Once again, Frank Miller, John Byrne, Jim Starlin. Do you think there's a a connective tissue here? The guys that are making the benchmarks comics are the names of the age that we all celebrate, that we continue to chase. It's their talent that pulls this off. Death in Comics was uh, really the, the kind of the maturation of comic books in the Bronze Age, as we've covered these were big characters. Jean Grey goes all the way back to the dawn of Marvel. Elektra, hottest character in comics. Um, Supergirl, Flash, huge DC standbys. Um, th- these 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 were big deals. These marked a significant point in this era that would send us on uh, a darker path. And and we're going to get more into those darker paths in the weeks and the episodes to come. If you have not read Frank Miller's Daredevil, if you have not read death of uh, Captain Marvel by Jim Starlin. If you have not experienced these X-Men comics, if you have not encountered Crisis on Infinite Earths, these are wonderful comics that stand the test of time that are as good today 
as they were then. Gwen Stacy, that's going to cost you too. That's a big story. All these books are available in trades. They've been collected umpteen times. You can go to your local retailer. You can order them. You can uh, ask them to get them for you. Support your comic book retailer. That's what it's all about. Comic books are what thrill me. Uh, Death of Electra disturbs me to this day. I still can't believe they killed her. Thank you for exploring the deaths in comics. The the death becomes her, really, is, uh, is, is kind of what we should umbrella this. Gwen Stacy, Jean Grey, Electra. Uh, these weren't seen as, as abusive either. Uh, uh, Daredevil, a lot of huge female readership there. She was an icon. Electra was an icon. And again, unexpected. But uh, really enjoyed walking down this path. There was no avoiding it. We, we confronted it head on. Arthur Curry, Aquaman's son. I got to tell you, you need to check that out. That, that is disturbing. 1977, that, that kind of should have warned me for everything that was going to follow. I am on Twitter at, at Robert Liefeld. Blue check mark, check me out. Don't do the imitators. That's my voice at Robert Liefeld and at Rob Liefeld on Instagram at Rob Liefeld. The blue checks are there so that you know that I'm legit and it's not parody. Love to hear from you. Love hearing your thoughts, your input, your reviews. Thank you for spending this great time with me looking over the Bronze Age, these comics that shape me, that form me, and death in comic books. We will talk again very soon. Thank you again. Stay safe. Be well. Uh, Wishing you all the best. Take care.